Welcome to the London Welsh Rugby Club podcast. This is episode 47. I hope you're well and thanks for your continued feedback on the quality of our guests. Please keep reviewing, favouriting and engaging with our club podcast. It is really appreciated. I've got a few announcements for this week. Easter Sunday, we'll see our minis and youth back at Old Deer Park playing rugby and hopefully having plenty of fun. The clubhouse is open for takeaway coffee and food. If you want to pop down and have a walk around the grounds to see our future stars, please do so. Please remember to socially distance though, of course. Greg Sherwood has launched our Easter and Spring Wine Collection. Six great bottles in each case, or order two cases for free delivery. The club earns a percentage from every case sold, so the more you drink, the more you're helping the club. And watch out for some special podcast episodes over the next few months when we talk, when we have some of the great and good of the game come and chat to us about community rugby's and their memories and thoughts of London Welsh. Back to this week's episode, our guest is certainly London Welsh royalty. Nine seasons at the club and he speaks quite candidly about the time he was there when the club were transitioning out of the great days of the 70s to a few of our great seasons in the mid-80s. A captain for three seasons, learning from the greats and telling us about some of the great tours the club went on in his time there. He went on to coach Wales for three years when rugby turned professional and we discussed the challenges with that, plus his time working for the RFU as Head of Elite Coach Development. Our guest this week is the one and only Kevin Bowring. Happy Easter and enjoy. This podcast is sponsored by London Welsh Developments. London Welsh Developments offer the entire range of services for all your home needs, from plumbing, electrical, joinery and building and maintenance. Their many years of experience building all forms of extensions and conversions, the odd new build, and some bespoke garden rooms and home offices. You will clearly see the attention to detail and understanding of your home that is difficult to match. They really do care and want the best for your home with no stone left unturned. For more information, contact London Welsh Developments on 0208 335 9123 or email on info at lwdltd.co.uk London Welsh Developments Welcome to the podcast, former London Welsh captain and Wales head coach, Kevin Bowring. How are you, Kevin? I'm fine, thanks, Gareth. It's a, a pleasure to be asked to be on your podcast and connect with London Welsh again. It's fantastic. Yeah, so, well, I said, once you're with London Welsh, it never leaves you, really, does it? So, look, um, you know, it's, we've had lockdown recently. You look well. How have you spent lockdown the last sort of, two or three months? Oh, gosh, it's... Um, um, when I retired from the RFU in 2016, I didn't stop work after that, really. I've, uh, I've sort of been doing coach development consultancy since then. And then, of course, when lockdown came in, it felt like full retirement, which was very worrying. <laughs> and full retirement meant, uh, oh, in the garden, the DIY, the, uh, yeah, walks, nice walks every day and finding some time with my wife, Wendy. Um, the, 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 the great thing that has happened, though, is that we've become grandparents for the first time. And uh, so we've got... Um, uh, a beautiful young 10-week-old uh, now, a grandson, Oscar. And uh, I tell you what, Gareth, 
it the pleasure I've had in the last 10 weeks with you know a grandchild made me realize uh, how much I missed my own children's upbringing really because I was too preoccupied perhaps with playing and and coaching so uh, I, I, I'm not sure I can redress that, but it's great pleasure to be able to spend time with uh, baby Oscar. A strange time to become a grandparent, isn't it? Because with, with lockdown, it, it must be more challenging to see them and hold them as you would normally, isn't it? Yeah, we, we are fortunate in that uh, we're a part of my daughter's uh, support bubble. So it's, it's just my wife and I and uh, my daughter, her husband and, and, the, and the baby. She's actually a housemistress at Cheltenham College. So, um, you know, with schools being off and online lessons and so on, uh, the boarding house has been fairly quiet. So uh, we've been able to see a fair bit of them, which has been a great pleasure. Oh, great news, great news. So I was going to ask how you keep in touch with rugby now, but look, I sort of know that because we were meant to chat last night, but you had the, the pleasure of being asked to watch Gloucester play Exeter by the Gloucester coaches. So what, what was your brief for, for that game then uh, from a coaching development point of view for Gloucester? Yeah, I suppose, um, I, you know, since retiring from the RFU, um, although I've got my own business, it doesn't make much money and it's just to keep me occupied and keep my brain active. But of course, I've been asked uh, and, and still connect with many of the coaches I, I worked with. And uh, a few years ago, I, I did some consultancy work with London Irish and uh, uh, George Skivington was one of the coaches there. And since then, I've kept in touch with him and he's got the head coach job at Gloucester. So uh, I mean, Gloucester has struggled a little bit this season. He's creating change there. And the club have asked me to uh, mentor, help uh, the coaching team there. So um, last night, in fact, was the first live game I could attend. <laughs> I had uh, PCR COVID tests done and... Uh, um, I had been to a, a training session in the week, so to get a gist of the, the plan, the game plan, the, what they were trying to do against uh, uh, a, a top of the league sort of Exeter team, which fortunately Exeter um, rested some key players uh, for, for Europe next week. And so I was able to go along and my, my brief really, I said, Look, it's, it's great to see preview training, review training days, match intensity training, final captain run type of sessions and match day management. And how do coaches operate, make decisions, replacement decisions uh, during, during the match, a pre-match chat, halftime chat, post-match chat. Media interviews are interesting, you know, and helping coaches deal with uh, trying to get there on their agenda while the interviewer is trying to get onto their agenda. So um, I've been writing up my thoughts this morning and I'm going into training on Monday to uh, share those with them and have a discussion around it with, with the coaches. With one brief uh, is simply to help uh, coaches get better. That's, uh, that's my agenda is just to help a coach be the best he can be to sustain a career in professional coaching, which is 
bloody difficult nowadays with uh, where we're going like football a bit, you know, with sack the coach type of thing. I mean, so look, well, yes, look, you know, at least at least they'll have a good weekend. They've, they've, they won yesterday against Exeter. Admittedly, as you say, the rest of a few players. I watched the game. I really enjoyed the game. I thought, you know, I thought yeah. the nine that came on the second half for Gloucester added a bit of momentum to the game. But you're right, you know, the scrutiny the coaches are under nowadays and the, as well as the amount of data they have on the players it must be so different to when you were doing your sort of coaching um, back in the day, I suppose. Yeah, and that's it. And, and turning that analysis into coaching, turning that data into coaching uh, to improve performance rather than data for data's sake uh, is an interesting challenge for coaches nowadays. You know, do you watch the game as a head coach live to see the the full pitch, the movement off the ball, or is it head in the computer watching the fine detail, uh, where perhaps assistant coaches need to do that? Um, so that balance of the big picture overview and uh, of the game that you need. And, and the fine detail that you need from assistant coaches and, and that balance of observation. And then to, I would call it, simplify the complexity of the game into bite-sized chunks, which have an impact uh, on performance uh, because we have limited channel capacity going to take in so much in, the, in your brain. So uh, simplifying the complexity, key points, Great to have a rule of three, isn't it? Three points only, they may remember two. <laughs> um, and, and, and to get those messages across to have an impact uh, on the second half. What was it, 14, 14 15 down, they were at half time and they yeah. went, uh, went on to win 34 18, which was you know, a good second half performance, as you say. I thought it was interesting though because um, it, you know they got a penalty try from a rolling ball from Luke Pierce, didn't they? <laughs> Which um, he didn't award Wales the previous weekend. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, look, you know, uh, he's a, I think he's a brilliant referee, and uh, there's no slur on him in any way whatsoever. But I just thought, is you know, the next game he's officiating at, he awards a penalty try for um, collapsing but, but a rolling ball. Yeah, <laughs> and it was evident last night, you know, coaches. You look at the referee; he's offside. He's this. He's that. Uh, really uh, shouting as if you can influence the referee or change his mind. Got no chance, you know. No. You've just no. got to accept it that even if he's wrong, he's right <laughs> when he blows the whistle. He's, he's so always right. Accept it, you know. You know um, and, no, I referee. Yeah. I referee uh, the community game you know, around here, like Saturday games, Sunday games, women's games, that sort of thing. And you're right, you know, the, the, you make howlers, but you're always right on the pitch. So, and obviously the scrutiny international referees have and the assistance from TMOs they have and even the premiership it's it's a team of four now isn't it and uh, they're they're you know professional um referees and they're fantastic they really are fantastic um did you manage to get um a chance to watch the the game last night and the impact um Scotland against France did you get to see that at all yeah I saw then uh, yeah half of the first half and the and most of the second half uh, as well which was yeah, terrific win by Scotland in the end, you know, and persevered right to the end. And you think, what was the French fullback thinking at that moment in time, you know, right well, at the end of the game? Well, obviously, maybe try bonus points. I, I don't know. But to be at level on points for Wales, they're never going to be champions, but 
that's the only thing you could think about. But gosh, you know, but even then, you know, Scotland kept the ball for so long. But I really want to talk about Wales, really. And, you know, what's your reflection on the whole of the Six Nations and, and maybe Wales' performance within it? Well, the, um, uh, it, it's interesting how, you know, people were saying, you know, lucky and against 14 men. And, and yes, there is a, a bit of luck in that. And, but you've got to adapt to the rules of the game. You've got to adapt to the referee, the context, the situation. And I think, um, you know, winning those early games uh, built some confidence and built some momentum for the Welsh team. And I think, uh, you know, they've evolved from the autumn where they deliberately uh, blooded some new young players. Um, they, they've got a, a bit of a balance in the squad. It's still, you know, very, very experienced with some real old heads who are playing terrifically well. You know, so you can't take that against them. And if you want your best team and that combination of a bit of youth and enthusiasm and some a new blood driving the, the old heads, uh, you know, through competition and their enthusiasm, I think Wales, you know, in the end, deserved the championship. Uh, you know, they did really well to, to win those games. And... Um, uh, uh, the coaching team, I'm pleased for the coaching team. I did some work um, the season before last down at Scarlet's uh, with the Welsh region, some of the Welsh regional coaching teams. And um, yeah, Wayne Pivak's overview, Stephen Jones's uh, attacking mindset, uh, his connection with the players, uh, Humph's, um, uh, you know, aggression, work a snarling type of side of forward play. And um, a new, new defense coach has come in and, and done well, although Gethin is, is early on his coaching journey. He's, you know, he's building on Sean's, uh, Sean Edwards's influence and, and they've done well, yeah, they've done very well. And I hope they'll continue to improve. You know, fingers crossed, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of the players have put their hands up for the Lions selection, and the Lions will be a touring team this year, this year in South Africa. So who, who do you think yes. put, their, put their hands up then to be, you know, who, you know, um, Lions for the for the Wales team? Gosh, I, I'm, you know, Warren Gatlin will know many of them. Um, I think he'll invest in experience as long as they can still do it and still perform. And they certainly showed that, uh, some of those players. So, you know, the key players will, will be definitely in the frame. But, you know, young, young Reece Zamet is has put his hand up uh, and burst onto the scene and seems a mature young man, you know, and, and physically, uh, you know, that speed, there's no substitute for speed, is there? Uh, so he is, is certainly one. I think there's a lot of good players out there. I think it's a difficult selection, isn't it? And I think, how does he want to play? How does he want to play against South Africa? And what South Africa will offer yeah, with their strengths? So how, uh, what sort of players will he use to counter their strengths and impose his own philosophy is always the coach's dilemma. 
Yes, yeah, it's, it's a challenge, and you know, form will will fade a little bit now, maybe with some, and you know, and I don't know when. I think it's probably May time or June time. Has to pick a squad, but it's a it's a it's a huge challenge for for him, and I'm, I'm sure he'll he'll enjoy that. But look, we could talk about Wales all day. I'm sure I'm, we will we'll do that at ODP at some time in the future. But how how do you keep in touch with London Welsh and the people around the club? Because obviously you're a busy man coaching things. Have, have you been back to the club, and do you know you know what's happening at the club at the moment? Yeah, not not so much now, Gareth, which uh, I'm sad to say, really, because I've lost uh, a bit of touch with it. Um, when the sort of changes happened and uh, it, it, it sort of um, came out of that professional era, um, I probably lost contact then. Um, and the, the club I know has rebuilt to make itself sustainable and has had to start at the bottom. Uh, in, in essence, and it's doing that and doing that well. Um, so I, I'm sure it's going to progress, but to balance the books and make the club sustainable, I think is the right goal, the right, the, a good objective. And it's great to see people like you uh, involved and helping with that because it's a great breeding ground, isn't it? You know, the number of young junior players that come through uh, I think is actually terrific in, in, in that area. Uh, I remember when uh, when I was playing that I was teaching at St. Paul's School uh, uh, in Barnes and many of the, uh, the kids played mini rugby at London Welsh at that time that I was teaching there, you know, and so I'd go into school on a Monday morning with a black eye and they'd say, oh, sir, I saw you miss a tackle or things like that. And, so, uh, you know, that connection uh, is, is still there, is, is, is terrific. I've still got some terrific friends from my London Welsh playing days. I mean, godparents to each other's children and uh, uh, meet regularly, uh, speak regularly, spend New Year's Eve together every New Year's Eve. Uh, usually uh, that London Welsh connection, you know, is still there. No, that's that's lovely to hear that, Kevin. You know, look, we, we are, you know, we're not um, professional in terms of we're not paying our players, but we're very professional off the pitch, even though we're an amateur club. And our, our goal is to go up to the national leagues, you know, um, in our five year plan. And we've done three promotions in three years. So, just, yep. you know, so we're, we're fingers crossed, as you say, the key thing is being sustainable and having it just and being a great place for people to come and watch rugby and, to, you know, for people to experience what you experienced in the 70s and 80s for our players now to experience that, you know, because um, I think during the pandemic, people have felt a loss of community. And that's one thing we are, is a strong community at London Welsh. And and uh, I suppose, you know, if I go back to, was it 1977 when I joined London Welsh? Um, if you're a Welshman in London, it was the place to be, you know, it's about connection, identity, a sense of belonging. And that's what London Welsh offered. And we traveled from, God, I, I, I taught out in Reading uh, for that first year I joined. And, um, I, you know, we traveled quite a long way to come to London Welsh, but the families came and we stayed. And, uh, 
uh, until eight, nine o'clock at night before going home again, driving probably illegally at times. But uh, it was a place where we connected, uh, we had some identity. Uh, it, I had a great time in, in my playing days at London Rocks, I have to say. Now we'll hear much more about that, but you grew up in South Wales. Um, I went to Neath Grammar School, so I suppose rugby was the natural sport you would you would turn to with your, your being being based there. Was what was like life like growing up for you and uh, and attending Neath Grammar? Yeah, I was a very working class sort of uh, uh, background. Really, father was a carpenter, and uh, I remember saying to my dad, "You know, come along and watch that, but don't shout type of thing. <laughs> don't shout from the touchline." And uh, I was fortunate he was always there in the background and uh, always very supportive, so I had a very supportive family. I, and I suppose rugby for me, yeah, God, I can't remember when I started playing. All I remember is being a fanatical Neath supporter. Our street was parallel to the uh, Knoll Park Road where the Knoll ground was, where Neath rugby played. Um, my hero uh, was Di Morris. Number uh, number six for Wales, number eight for Neath, a minor from Rickos in the Neath Valley, hard as nails, you know, <laughs> hewn out of Welsh anthracite, always in the right place at the right time, perpetual motion, humble. Uh, what a role model, really. Uh, so rugby in those days, and then and Neath Grammar School. Gosh, if there was a soccer ball in the playground, there'd be a nail in it about <laughs> half an hour because everybody was playing touch rugby and what have you. And I remember playing um, in, in Penadrea where I lived. We had a little park behind the chapel there. And the, the park was where we played our games. You know, we organized them ourselves. We played our touch rugby where uh, we played against, you know, four or five other boys. But we had to avoid the the roundabout, the swings and the bars as well, and, and the slide type of thing. <laughs> it was triangular in shape, so um, uh, three against four. Three would play that way because it was wider to score there, and the four played against three uh, to score in the narrow triline this end because that was fairer type <laughs> of thing. And, uh, um, we did have a, a, a kid from Rosser Street up the, up the road come and join and play it. And he wanted a referee all the time. And his name was Clive Norling. There you go. He went on to <laughs> yes. be a world-famous uh, international <laughs> rugby referee, actually. So even in those early days, he was, uh, he was refereeing. So that, 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 you know, that environment where we could play out in the street a lot more. Um, Neath Grammar School, fanatic and, and uh, uh, terrifically successful at, at uh, rugby there. Ron Trimnell, the uh, head of rugby, big influence on discipline, on teamship, on uh, togetherness, that team spirit, that sacrifice to the team. You know, good lessons early in life that you learned from uh, school rugby, really. A hundred percent. And did you play for the school and for Neath then as, as a as a youth player growing up then? Did would you like you must have played uh, yeah, quite a lot so of rugby I in those played, days? Yeah, yeah. I uh, I often played school um 
uh, on a Saturday and and I, I played some at Neath Colts then, uh, Neath Athletic uh, uh, Colts on, on a Sunday sometimes. Sometimes he played two games at the weekend. Um, the school program was really strong. Um, I, I tell you what, my dream, I wanted to play for Wales in school and I didn't. And my school first 15 photograph has six players in the front row with their Welsh secondary schools shirts on. Six players from one school team yeah. played for Wales under 18 schools that year. You know, that's what a third to nearly a half, you know, it's a terrific uh, uh, amount. And I wasn't one of them really. Yeah, you know? um, so the, the tradition in the school was, uh, was fantastic. It was a fantastic uh, breeding ground. Uh, for for rugby and, and beneath the area and this rugby club, the All Blacks, you know, with a white Maltese cross, was uh, uh, a, a terrific hard rugby club in those times. And I, I also played for we, we we moved down to Britain Ferry, and I played for Britain Ferry Rugby Club, which was again um, wonderful rugby, almost village rugby club community, you know, with a rugby club which had a rugby pitch, soccer pitch cricket pitch, bowls area. It was almost the, the centre of a village, the social centre of a village. And obviously in those days, you know, um, rugby was amateur, so everyone needed a profession. So whilst your ambition in rugby was to obviously to do as well as you possibly could, you were also looking to, to a career. So post-school, you went to university in London, didn't you? And yeah, well, it's interesting. My father, you know, was a... Um, uh, an apprentice carpenter and at 14 and uh, worked in the metal box factory in Neath and uh, he said oh you got to get on to the management side of industry and business so I actually started doing a degree in business studies at Portsmouth Polytechnic in those days which of course I hated first time away from home <laughs> uh, playing rugby for the, the college I actually played for Hampshire uh, in my um, that first year Hampshire senior team, um, hated it, uh, stuck it for about 18 months, two years, went home, um, played at, at Britain Ferry uh, in sort of holiday time, even coached the under 18 team, although I just left the under 18s to go to college, I even started doing a bit of coaching at, at Britain Ferry sort of youth team uh, at that time. Um, but I mean, sitting behind the desks, you know, uh, you know, as a business or, or management side, just didn't float my boat. So uh, I was playing cricket, I think, and someone had come down back from university. I think he was at Cambridge, and he said, "Oh, why don't you become a PE teacher? You know, you love your sport." And uh, and so I applied late to Borough Road College in Isleworth in Heston. And uh, I think I uh, had an interview about the first week in September and started about the third week in September. And I had three fantastic years studying as uh, to become a PE teacher. I did a fourth year B.Ed degree then. So I had four years there. Uh, it coincided with uh, a mad Irishman who started lecturing at the same time there and ran the rugby called John Hunter, 
who had another influence on me with his passion, his enthusiasm for, for the game. Um, it, it was infectious. And uh, so that kept me going on my, my rugby journey, really. That's where I was fortunate. I was captain in my second year there, actually. And did you just play for your university during those four years and no, didn't go back to Wales to play or play anywhere else then? No, just, just university rugby? So um, that second year I was captain and then I uh, got asked uh, by Neath to come back and play in the holidays. So I actually did play for, uh, for Neath about four or five times in university holidays. Uh, I, my first game for Neath was number eight. So I played in Di Morris's jersey. <laughs> I could have retired then, you know. Was my he watching? Game, my second game for Neath was uh, at number six. They brought Di back because I wasn't good <laughs> enough at number eight. So I played with him. So uh, that was even better. You know? um, so yeah, I, I, four or five times, but I think at the end of that second year in the summer uh, or at the end of the season, I got asked to play sevens with the Voyagers and uh, we went over to Amsterdam and had a great time uh, with the Voyagers who are a fantastic uh, organization really. Um, I think I might have played with uh, Clive Reese. Yeah. And uh, Clive said, oh, you can't keep traveling back to, to Nice, you know, to play. I was going into my third year there and come to London Welsh, you know. So uh, I did go to London Welsh. Um, and played uh, my third year in, in college, I played for London Welsh, and my fourth year in college then, I, I, I played at London Welsh, which uh, I would have been 1977. Uh, and, and actually then, my first job out of teaching, uh, I went and taught at Clive's school in Reading. Um, he was head of department at uh, a comprehensive school in just outside Reading. And so I lived with him for a year as well and uh, taught with him. And actually, he got back into the, the Welsh squad after, after that. Having been Wales and Lions 74, I think he, he had dropped out of the squad, but I didn't know whether me, you know, insisting that we went training and, you know, were really driven about it, that uh, he got back into the Welsh squad again and played for Wales again. But how does a student, though, get to know Clive Rees, I guess, gets taken on a Voyager's Sevens tournament in Amsterdam and then comes back, walks into London Welsh, and you've got John Taylor there, you've got, you know, this is the 70s now, London Welsh, with probably preeminent club in England. What, what does that feel for like as someone who's just starting out on their rugby journey? Well, this you know, when you growing up at that time, you think of the 71 Lions that were victorious in um, in New Zealand and John Dawes and JPR and Gerald and Mervyn and John Taylor and uh, Jeff Evans, Mike Roberts, all the London Welsh players that had played so successfully for that unbeaten tour. Then, God, it's stars in your eyes, really. Um, so uh, yeah, the, the difficulty, that great London Welsh era had just waned a bit. Uh, JT was still there, so John Taylor was still there. And he was captain in my first year uh, at London Welsh. And 
I think I did all his tackling really for him. At that <laughs> he was such a great player. He would berate the referee. He would lead. Uh, he had done it all. He, uh, we were in awe of him, really. Um, but he was coming to the end of his 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 playing time, and uh, yeah, you know, you just listen and take it all in. You you listen to Mike Roberts, Jeff Evans. Uh, Jim Shanklin uh, was in the centre, then Keith Hughes, uh, Clive himself, uh, some uh, who had all played in that era uh, uh, as well, was you, you just let it all sort of wash over you and think, pinch yourself and think, God, am I in the changing room? Am I in the team with these guys? You know? That's amazing. I, I, love, I love hearing things like that. Look, you... Do you remember who you made your debut against at all that in, that, in your first game yeah, for the Welsh? It was Saracens at Bramley Road. And uh, I, in fact, you know, um, I think I got concussed. And uh, certainly at the end of the game, I remember going home, splitting headache, uh, almost feeling sick, having to lay down and sort of close my eyes and things like that. You think of some of the issues now because we would never leave the pitch. There was no HIA. Thankfully, nowadays, the medical care at that top end of the game is excellent. I mean, I think it was pretty good in our day, really. But as players, we wouldn't leave the team, would we? You know, we wouldn't leave the pitch to leave the team uh, when you're injured. Um, so I think, you know, it's a hot topic at the moment with progressive rugby and, uh, uh, you know, head injuries and worries about long-term uh, effects. Um, I, I'm involved a little bit with progressive rugby, and um, it's it's a concern. And we've got to balance that concern and medical care, obviously, and remember the the value of the game, the cooperation, responsibility, identity, belonging, team spirit the lessons we learn, what's great about the game, you know, but we've got to make it safe and attractive to children and parents as well. So there's this, but, but we mustn't forget the, the, the good things that the game offers that you and I have out of the game. No, I completely agree. I mean, again, we could speak at so much length about some, that topic, you know, and other people will, will do that. But in your first season, you didn't just like just play a handful of games, you played 27 games in your first season, were there any sort of fixtures in particular that, that you remember um, from, from that stood out for you? Gosh, no, it's uh, well, I suppose um, what, what I remember is playing all you know, Harlequins at Twickenham, uh, Leicester away, Bath away. But what, what was interesting there. And, and it would be our identity. We were Welsh, uh, beep, 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 Welsh bastards yeah. <laughs> <laughs> playing when we were playing Coventry or Mosley or Leicester or Bath. And then when we'd go down to Wales, we were English. <laughs> <laughs> you know, playing Cardiff, Newport, Swansea, and, uh, and the Lethley, uh, Bridgend. Then we were English. Bleep bleeps. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, it, it was, but there was that identity as well. 
I also I also remember uh, uh, Twickenham Sevens, Middlesex Sevens, where you know fifty thousand people would boo London Welsh when they ran onto the pitch, but it was one of those tongue-in-cheek boos, you know. They like to sort of boo you and pretend to hate you, but want you to do well, get to the final and lose type of thing because of the players we had. Well, you could, the amount of games you all played in those days were ridiculous because there was no league structure then. There was lots of friendlies and things like that. But look, in your first season, you scored uh, two tries in a cup fixture at Coventry. And you also, I think, we learned the Welsh beat Bath 46-0 at ODP in the January. Do you know what I mean? So I say this, there was no league and... Um, you, you, you again the second season you another you know consistent year for you 26 appearances but it was the third season um you were appointed captain and that must be a proud moment because i was chatting to mike powell last week and and he was captain in like 08 and 09 and he was just saying how special it is to have your name on that board what did it, what, when they asked you um kevin to be captain what did that feel like for you yeah it it's um I, I, it was a special uh, occasion, really. I suppose I'd, I'd been a captain of a number of teams, you know, age, some age group and uh, college. And, uh, um, and and I don't know why they asked me to be captain, because, you know, the, the first year was John Taylor, and then the second year was Bill Davey, who had come up from Wales and worked in, in London. And uh, um, they were... You know, a different sort of age structure to me. They were at the end of their career. I was still, you know, quite mid-career or early. Um, so it, it was a, a terrific amount of pride in, in that. Um, you know, there's a, a sense of responsibility. There's a sense of pride when you see your name on the board, like, like my power said. But there is a responsibility that goes with it. There's a history, and and too often we go compared with the great teams of the 70s uh, it's inevitable but you have you know it's a different context it's a different era it's a different time it's a different stage of uh, of the club and of the team and you've got to manage that um, it was interesting number of games I think I I did over 100 games as captain in three seasons because I, I someone gave me a tankard with 100 games as captain and uh, I think it was nine seasons, and I, I think it was 268 games I played in nine <laughs> seasons, which is about 30 games a season, as you say. Now, 30 games a season in those days with rucking, you know, being rucked out at the bottom of the, <laughs> you know, stamped all over and getting clocked from behind when you go down to Wales or what have you. Uh, yeah, it was, that was quite a few games, really. And that's amazing. I said the amount of games you played. I say uh, height of consistency, really. You know, in the you know in the back row, but three years as captain, as you say. So, what were the responsibilities of the captain of the club at the time? Was it was there much to do around media at all, or was it purely sort of training and match day, really? Yeah, not not so much uh, on the media front. You know that uh, that players are. Uh, have to succumb to nowadays and, and those sort of responsibilities. Um, uh, hold the beer kitty was important <laughs> for after the match. <laughs> uh, no, on field uh, training, you, know, you contributed a bit more to 
tactical appreciation. I think in those days, you know, because you had to balance your work life and your playing life and your training life, you had to lead yourself uh, probably more than the modern player. That there's a lot more perhaps done for the modern player. And, uh, you know, my challenge to coaches now is to how do you develop the leadership in your players? Uh, we were problem solvers on the pitch. Um, we contributed to how we played and how we trained more so than the players. We've got to put modern coaches, got to put real deliberate attention on giving players responsibility, developing their leadership, and, and so on. Um, so it was a different era in, in that sense. While we had to lead ourselves, so we were more able to lead and follow other players. You know, it was more collaborative, perhaps, at that time. Uh, yeah, I understand that. So um, a lot of people have said, um, whilst doing my research, um, on your background is like you were quite close to a, a Wales call-up. Did you ever feel that you, know, you were um, that was that that's a chance I slipped you by? It's, you know, it's a, the, for some reason or other selectors didn't fancy you because a lot of people think you were playing in a you know London Welsh team with some players who who represented Wales, and you you should have had the chance to do that as well. Well, it's nice of them to you know have that perception, and uh, you know. It, it was always an ambition, and I think it's any Welsh boy growing up wants to, you know, play for Wales. And um, I suppose on reflection, you know, having coached Wales about 30 times, I would have swapped that to have played once. Uh, that's how special, yeah. you know, it is to us, I think, isn't it, in, in playing for Wales. Having said that, it was, um, there were a lot of good players around at that time. Um, a lot of good players in Wales at that time. You know, people say, oh, perhaps you weren't seen because you were up in London Welsh or what have you. It is what it is, you know. I'm, uh, I, I, I'm really fortunate to have played at that time where I don't think I would swap playing when I did for playing now and earning, I don't know, 100,000 pounds or whatever they earn, you know. We, um, the, the camaraderie, the, the fun and enjoyment, the touring. You know, London Welsh in those days were great touring side. And uh, to, to, to tour and experience different cultures, different cu countries, meet different people, play against different styles of play uh, with your friends, with your mates. What a way to learn about life, you know. It was terrific at that time for me, and that's why I like, you know, I want, I want future generations to enjoy the game. I know it's slightly different at the professional end now, but I don't think I'd swap playing when I did at London Welsh in particular uh, for playing now in the professional world. Now that's lovely to hear. So, wh where did you go on tour then? Just name a couple of the uh, oh, locations. Um, uh, Midwest of America, playing in Colorado, playing in on a pitch at the bottom of the, the chairlift in Aspen, Colorado. Um, after the uh, after the day after the game, our host saying uh, we're going to go up the chairlift. It's middle of summer. This was. Um, 
So we all meet at the, at the bottom of the chairlift in Aspen, Colorado, ski area, famous ski area. Uh, we meet at the bottom of the chairlift. chairlift. Um, they say uh, a few of our hosts went up the chairlift. We started loading all the barbecue stuff onto the chairlifts. That got sent up, taken off at the top. We got on the chairlift. At the top, we had this most wonderful barbecue singing London Welsh songs, all clean rugby songs, fantastic with hosts. Uh, they enjoyed it so much. They said, we're gonna do it again tomorrow, but this time we're gonna drive up in four wheel drive trucks because we've had such a great time. You know, that's, that's rugby. <laughs> oh, that's magic, magic memories. And look, you said so you were captive for three years. Then Bruce Bradley took over for a while, and then Clive Reese took over. And then so everyone harps on, not harps on, but looks back at the cup run in '85 when we play at Twickenham against Bath. You know, what do you recollect? You know, what's your recollection of that run and um, you know the day of HQ? Yeah, that was uh, uh, great. Bruce was in school with me, same class. So we were in the same <laughs> class in Neath Grammar School. So See, a Welsh schoolboy, though. Uh, he was. Okay. Uh, he played for Welsh Second Schools. It was a wow. terrific prop. He was, actually. And a terrific uh, uh, tight head prop um, for his size, his technical expertise, his uh, scrummaging ability, his ability around the loose. Uh, was to, was a was a modern day prop prop I I, I thought you, know, you would look at, um, so so the cup run gosh yeah that was yeah that was a special uh, occasion I I remember one game because I had great pleasure because I had the program to show my boss at the RFU my boss at the RFU was Rob Andrew mm -hmm. and. Uh, in our cup room, we played against Nottingham in one of the rounds, I can't wait, at Nottingham. And we smashed them 12-11. And Rob Andrew had just come down, 12-11, it was that close, had just uh, played at Cambridge University, got its blue. He was guesting and playing for Nottingham. I think Alan Davis was the coach. Um, and I think he missed like eight out of nine kicks at goal and we won 12 11 to go through the next round uh, so i remember that one and i had great pleasure in showing him the program and reminded him of that many occasions it must be a, a nightmare for him that game you must remember that game surely yeah <laughs> he did he didn't want to remember it but i reminded him of it uh, there was another game i think it was coventry as well i think it was a draw and coventry had um a number eight at Coventry had scored about eight, ten tries from pushover tries. So their scrum was renowned at the time. And I think it might have been Bruce, Byron Light, and Tim Jones. Two Oxford Blues and uh, um, uh, someone who had been to Imperial College London. It must have been the brightest front row <laughs> we've ever there's ever been, you know. Uh, and they decided we are going to go for the in the scrum. They are renowned for their scrum and their pushovers. And the first scrum up in Coventry, they must have been taken aback because we blasted them. Everybody was totally committed to this first scrum, which set the tone for the game. 
And again, I think we smashed them 10 all, didn't we? Was that well, the... it was 10 all, yeah. I think two tries to one or something like that, I think it was. So we are on try yeah. difference. Yeah. It was that close. Uh, but of course, the great Bath teams. We, we beat Bath many, quite a few times at London Welsh, but we never beat them in Bath. And certainly they went on a run. And, and that cup final, they, they forged ahead from us, I think. Uh, I think we came back in the second half. Um, uh, was it about 25, 14, 25? Yeah, yeah, 24, 15, spot on. Yeah, it was. Something like that, yeah. I, I, but I think they had, they'd gone up either 20 points in the first half and we, we clawed our way back. But uh, the one thing I remember there, uh, Clive showed um, the bath wing the outside and he took it. And the bath wing was David Trick who was really rapid, uh, very quick, and he took it and scored, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was great to get to, to, to Twickenham in the cup final. That was our centenary season as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. Um, great, you know, great season to do it. And that's probably the most high profile individual game in London Welsh's history, I, I would say. And for you to be part of that, you know, with, with, your, with your friends, you know, and in our centenary season, you know, that's just, you know, that's magic that I think that's lovely memories for, for all concerned, even though we didn't get the W, it, you know, it's just one of those things and it has to be a loser sometimes. The, the record crowd for a cup final and a club game at that, at that moment, I think Twickenham was about 30,000, 40,000 there, but I think it was a record crowd at, at that time uh, as well. Uh, yeah, it was uh, a good memory where we just, you know, fell short, but uh, uh, it was a good cup run. We should probably put, have a night to thinking now, actually. It should be good to have that on at the club. and Because I think it's on YouTube somewhere. We have a, a night watching that at the club and maybe people speaking about it. That'd be quite a good so, social event, wouldn't it? Get some of the players back together of yeah, that era. I, I, I think, uh, I, I remember, I think, chasing one kickoff and smashing Gareth Chilcott. And then I think Gareth Chilcott scored a try later on. He either ran through me or, <laughs> or over me or whatever. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was um, yeah, it was a special special game and a good uh, good season. As we also went on a world tour in that centenary season. We went to Hong Kong, Korea, and California around the world. I mean, who, who funds that? Is it? Is it because you're all like? You, I know you. It's an amateur club, so it's just, like, it's just like is it raising money? Is that what it was as a club? And you know, yeah, for yeah the... a bit of bit of certainly raising money, and that uh, I, I don't know. It sort of gels teams together as well when you're on tour. And you, you, at that time, we had that one shamitarism, but uh, we had very good um i don't know their presidents or chairman uh, like like kelvin was uh john gale was a, an impresario whose whose big west end hit was no sex please we're british his show was like the longest running comedy in the west end uh vic watkins vat watkins a building uh, great benefactor of london welsh kelvin of course was you know london welsh through and through and very supportive benefactors which is typical of london welsh again okay no no cool so um you also played in the century matches against barbarians at twickenham and fiji odp but you're also selected for the barbarians weren't you so that must have been you know um must, must have meant something for you 
yeah, that was a, a special, uh, special time for for me. And um, and you know, I, I got to the Wales B squad, but didn't play. And um, as I said, that, that disappointment of playing not playing for Wales was there. But I uh, I, I felt you know I was competing against. Um, those international players, whether they were uh, against the English clubs uh, and English players or all Welsh players, pretty you know, pretty evenly, and so it was a, a real honour and a, a pleasure to be selected for the Barbarians. It was against Leicester on a Christmas, like a, a December the twenty eighth or something like that, um, and uh, yeah, that was a memorable game. I, I played a few more games then for them, uh, mainly against. Um, club sides or mob's memorial match and things like that, you know. Um, and that was a, a great honour and a, a great privilege to play for them. And when you played your other sort of nine seasons at London Welsh, what, what were the supporters like? And what, what sort of was the size of the crowds watching those games? Oh, great. Uh, absolutely. And, and we went through the bar at London Welsh, you know, uh, from the change rooms through the bar, upstairs, have a meal. But we'd come back down to the bar. So you, you almost knew them. You know, so you would talk to them. They were supportive. The singing in in the clubhouse and in the bowls, uh, the bowls club uh, as well. So yeah, it, it, it's players nowadays seem to be away from the spectators, the the supporters, and it doesn't seem such a warm connection as it was in those days. And uh, uh, no, the, the warmth of feeling. As I said, it, it was that community of uh, a little bit of Wales in, in London. Uh, and it, it connected everybody and, uh, you know, very supportive. They, they were. Are they still, do they still, you know, from the change room, they walk through the bar, get their food and they hang around and, and chat. They, they do it now and it's, it's, it's great to see. And it's the values of rugby that I think where people are able to do that. Look, um, were people like Mordlice and Terwin around the club in, in your yeah, day? And, and, and and what, what were their roles at the time at the club? Because obviously they're still there well. now, right? Still helping out. Probably, probably doing the same thing. <laughs> like, so, but there was some great, um, oh God, Mordlice, Terwin, uh, Dennis Horgan was one, um, uh, um, Edgar Thomas. You interviewed um, Barrel. Yeah, did you? His son, Edgar, uh, terrific. Ron Holly, sadly, recently passed away. Um, some great, uh, great people in, involved with the club at that time. You know, London was through and through, been there years. It was that sort of club, you know, you identified with them and there was a belonging. It was a family, you know, it was a family that pulled you in. And it's exactly something we're trying to, you know, keep that sort of family and connections going now. Look, you had nine great years. You, you know, you, you left to be, um, to be director of sports at Clifton College. And so what I want to understand now is how you go into coaching and taking your coaching more seriously. Because, you you know, within a few years, you end up in 1995-96 as the head coach of Wales. So if you just sort of briefly take us through that, just, um, you know, because you did some age grade stuff with Wales. And then you land the, the first job as head coach of Wales in the professional era? Yeah, so it was, uh, I saw as a PE teacher, I think I said earlier on that uh, even as a student, I, I went back and coached Britain Ferry Youth uh, at, uh, and I was probably 19 or 20 then. Um, so, and as a PE teacher, you're, you're, you're coaching and 
uh, and involved with that. Uh, I suppose as a player and as a captain, you're you're a bit of a coach on the field. You know, you're you've got to connect with the coach and relate to the coach, and have that clo close relationship. You know, Jeff Evans was a great British Lions player and and, and coach uh, at London Welsh. John Vaughan. You know, John Dawes had been in, involved. So I was teaching. Um, uh, because I moved to Clifton College, I had to give up playing because it had um, Saturday morning school, Saturday afternoon games. Um, I was 32, so I could have played another year or, or perhaps gone into coaching. But um, uh, yeah, it was a great opportunity to teach at a school like that. Um, during that time, then, I had 10 years at Clifton College, but during that time, uh, I did some, John Dawes became uh, a coaching director or director of rugby at the Welsh Rugby Union, and we used to, the Welsh Rugby Union used to run um, under 17, under 18 development camps in Aberystwyth, and I got asked to come and help coach on, on the development camp. And uh, one of the camps, uh, 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 Neil Jenkins was a, a young under 17 player uh, on there uh, as well. So I, I, I suppose I got involved with a bit of coaching then. Uh, John Dawes then asked me to coach the under 20s for a year. And usually you went on to be under 21 coach the following year. And then someone would, it would rotate. Uh, yeah. Someone else would come under 20 and then under 21. Um, but that year, I think it was uh, Ron Waldron was national coach, and he said, oh, I'd like you to do the under-20s for a World Cup cycle. The World Cups have started coming in. Um, would you do three more years as it? So I did Wales under-21 for three years, and then I got asked to coach Wales A, and I did that for three years. Um, as well as at that time, the Welsh Rugby Union created um, like a national academy, Elite Rugby 2000. It was, you know, what, what's rugby going to be like in the new millennium and, and trying to develop players for that. Uh, so I got involved with that a little bit, coaching that and coaching Wales Sevens because I'd been a Sevens player as well. So I was coaching Wales Sevens. Um, uh, and then the game went professional in September 95. Yeah. Uh, Wales uh, advertised for a, a full-time professional head coach. I applied because I was Wales A coach. I'd known all the players from under 21, Wales A anyway. Um, I got the job. So uh, I had to decide to leave the security of teaching in an independent school to become a professional coach, which I did. And um, three years, I didn't last the four years, unfortunately. Results were never good enough and never are with coaches, um, uh, which is a, a bit of a regret. But it was the difficulty then was that um, transition into professional rugby. So the difficulty was, um, you know, players accepting money, not for doing the same thing. Professionalism isn't just accepting money. It's professional in your fitness, professional in your, your diet, your hydration, your lifestyle. 
uh, your preparation. And so that was going to take time, you know, with, uh, with Welsh players and some quicker than others, but that, that was taking time. Um, uh, but a, a terrific opportunity. And I think I was the 11th national coach at that time. So not many people had done it. And sometimes you've got to lift your head above the parapet and give it a go. But it's better to try, isn't it, always? But look, you know, that, that probably as a role is the most high-profile role in Wales, I would say. Um, and, and you had that for three years. So what was it like in, in the firing line for, you know, the, the Wales on Sunday, all the papers and having to do, you know, I know it's a lot more scrutiny now, but even then, you know, professional rugby, you're there to be shot at in a way and you're judged by your results, aren't you? Yeah, and, and you know, if the team loses, the coach gets the blame and that's yeah. probably right. You know, if the team wins, the players get the praise and that's <laughs> probably right. And uh, that's that's the way it is, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, we're, we're in it together and the media scrutiny is enormous because it's so important to the Welsh public. It's, to, it's, it's so important to the Welsh psyche the Welsh well-being in terms of mood of the nation sort of sort of thing. People care so much and are passionate about it. And sport is passion, you know, it's harnessing that passion in, in the right way. Uh, and so the scrutiny, um, yeah, is, is, is a concern. You know, do you only read the good bits in the, in the papers? And not the bad bits. Well, people tell you it anyway. You know, don't read the papers at all. People will still tell you what's in them. <laughs> uh, you have to engage with the media because it promotes the sport. It's it's important that you do it. Do you trust them? It's their agenda, not your agenda. Um, you've got to engage with it. So it's. It's a difficult one to, and it's even harder nowadays for for professional coaches where the, the scrutiny is even, is, is even greater. But also by being one of the most uh, difficult jobs in world rugby, it's one of the most special jobs in world rugby as well. And, uh, you know, to have done it was a terrific honor and a, and a, a privilege and something I can be proud of. I wish we had won more games, as ever. But uh, I, I, the transition was a difficult period, and uh, even the governance and sort of Welsh Rugby Union committee, you know, representing Valley Rugby, some of them, quite rightly so, but making decisions on the world game you know it's difficult to to align sometimes look you know coaching is your passion and you've brought players through the system then who've become up become coaches now and you've mentioned some of them like neil jenkins um jonathan humphreys now who's your forwards coach for wales um rob howley the play played for wales did you see this in them as players you know they demonstrated that they could go and be good coaches yeah, I, I think some of them. Uh, Kingsley Jones was another one. Yeah, yeah. Kingsley Jones, who's now Canada coach, and uh, he um, uh, perhaps wasn't the best player, but his leadership, his presence uh, was infectious. And he's gone on. Phil Davis, his passion, it was another one. Uh, Rob's 
um, professionalism. Now, there's a player that was professional before his time in his in his fitness and his attitude to his training and, and so on. And I'm not surprised that uh, he hasn't, you know, he has become such a, a good coach. Robbie McBride was a, another one um, uh, as a forward that, that came down. Um, so uh, Dai Young was one. I, there was a period where we reintroduced rugby league players back to Union. Yes. Dai Young, uh, Scott Gibbs, Alan Bateman, uh, uh, Scott Quinnell, you know, players like that to reintroduce them uh, to rugby was Jonathan Davis was was one, although he was at the end of his career, and uh, so that was a, a, a challenge as well with their attitude. But they had learned also from rugby league and professional coaching, rugby union. So Dai Young is very experienced now in the Premiership and in Wales. Uh, Phil Davis, um, uh, yeah, Kingsley Jones, Rob Howley, John Humphreys now. And, and sometimes they've got to go away, a bit like me going to England a, a little bit as well and doing some work there, is you, you get a broader, rounded, more rounded coaching development experience. And I think they benefit from that as well. It's like the players just, and the, I know it's difficult now for players to go away and come back again because of the 60 cap ruling, but um, some players have benefited from that. And some, some of the Scottish players in particular, where they haven't got that, like Hogg, Finn Russell, Johnny Gray, become better players playing you know, in, in different environments and, and, and that's benefited their country. But I suppose we want stronger regions, you know, what, you know what's right, you know, who knows what's the right thing really for... Um, Welsh rugby, but you know it's important that players get different experiences, isn't it? Really? Oh yeah, I, uh, definitely. And I think, as I said earlier about touring, you know, experiencing different cultures, different coaching approaches, different coaching philosophies, just adds to your uh, playing armory, your coaching armory, uh, until it sort of morphs into your own style. Then, uh, but that those experiences are, are vital. I think. Look, you, you left Wales and you, you left. You were a lecturer at Cardiff Met for four years, but um, you then went to work for the RFU for fourteen years to head up their lead coaching. What did that role entail, and who were the coaches you were helped bring through the system? Gosh, that was uh, that was an interesting one as well because the RFU at that time had a performance director from uh, Australian hockey, Australian hockey coach Chris Spice. He's performance director of British Swimming now, and his vision said, look, we're going to create a job and a budget to help our best coaches get better. So um, that was the first sport to invest in elite coach development um, in order to uh, coaches in the uh, England rep team uh, teams, premiership, elite academies that were starting off. How do we stimulate the ongoing learning of what is perceived as our best coaches. So I got interviewed for that job with Chris Weiss. Also on the interview panel was Clive Woodward, who I coached against a few years earlier. Fran Cotton, the chairman of uh, uh, the um, uh, performance rugby in, in England at that time, and someone from Sport England. And um, I, I said, when you become national coach, where do you go for learning 
support and challenge if you want to get better. Um, and that being open-minded to it. And not not someone telling them how to coach, but thinking out loud with them, supporting, challenging their thinking in order to do it better, helping reflection, self-review, improvement, continuous improvement. So I got the job and we had a blank sheet of paper and uh, went to, you know, a coach is a leader, a leader of a team, an assistant coach is uh, of attack, is leader of the attack, you know. So it's about leadership, management, and coaching as three interconnected uh, 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 concepts, areas. Uh, so we went to leadership in the military, leadership in exploration to get some learning, leadership in business, leadership from other sports. Um, uh, we went to all different domains to try and get some learning to apply to our coaching environment. And um, I, I, I think people in, enjoyed the, the challenge to get better. Um, coaches only give a certain amount of time to their own development. You know, if they've lost on Saturday, they won't come to a workshop on Wednesday because there's so much on. And I understand that. But if you can um, support and challenge them to get better, uh, you know, they, they, and they are open to that hunger for improvement and continuous improvement, then uh, we're getting there. Uh, so that was the job, is working with England rep team coaches, so age group team coaches, some national coaches, usually at national coach level, they, they tend to do it themselves, but certainly I worked very closely with Stuart Lancaster because he came through the, the, the system. Um, and, you know, despite, you know, his experience with 2015 World Cup, uh, he's re-established himself. You know, no one becomes a bad coach overnight. Look at him at Le Leinster now and the success he's having in, in the Pro 14 and in Europe. You're, you're employed by the RFU and your coach is coaching England in the Rugby World Cup playing Wales. Who did you want to win? <laughs> Kevin, I'm putting you on the spot here. How many times have I been asked that question again? I don't know. How many times have I I've been got... asked that question? <laughs> And, uh, and look, and my answer is, when an Englishman, Sean Edwards, is coaching Wales to play England, when Sean Edwards is coaching France to play Wales now, yeah. if you are professional, to do a professional job for your employer, you've got to be supporting that. Yeah. So if... England at that time would beat Wales, it might reflect a little bit on the professional job you're doing. Uh, but I'm Welsh through and through as well. So, I'm, only, I'm teasing yeah, you, aren't I? I'm teasing you. I, I knew you were going to say that. England. But, but, <laughs> but that's, that, that's the reality. Now that I'm unattached, I want Wales to win all the games as well. Oh, no, of course. Did you ever help any of the London Welsh coaches with their development? Yeah, I did. So at that time, when uh, Welsh went got into the Premiership, um, was it Danny Wilson and uh, Lynn, Lynn uh, Jones so, and yeah. then Justin okay. uh, and then Justin Justin Bunnell, I think it was. So uh, I would visit every Premiership club and challenge each coach, head coach, and coaching team to say, "What would make you a better coach next year, next season? You know, can we help in any way?" And if a coach is self-aware, he knows what would make him better. 
sometimes they say, I don't know what's on offer, you know, to, to improve. But um, yeah, difficult, you know, because they had just got promoted. They had a move to Oxford yeah. as well, which was like a hollow stadium with no identity and, and belonging. So that was difficult. Um, so it was, a, it was tough for them. And I think London Welsh always struggled with that move into professionalism. You know, didn't quite manage it. As teams like Mosley or Coventry struggled uh, in those early days as well. Um, and it, it, you know, what is sad is that, uh, you know, you've had to start at the bottom again. We've had to start at the bottom again to claw our way back. Look, Agent Davis mentioned about professors. I mean, he didn't think that was right for the club back in 2000, 2001. Look, we had some great times in the Premiership, you know, I must admit. But look, you know, um, we've, we, we we know our identity, you know, we, and we mentioned in this conversation already about being sustainable. I've got a great community at London Welsh. So I think we're just going to try and play as high as possible as we can in the league um, and, and afford to do that. You know, that's the key thing for us as a club and, and for everyone to have a great time at London Welsh like you did in your exactly. nine great years there. And balance the books, make the club sustainable, uh, play at the highest level and uh, aim to play at the highest level that will allow that to happen, I think is really important. Proud history uh, and and I think there will be more fire in the dragon. I'm sure there is. 100%. Look, you made 267 appearances in nine years, scoring 44 tries, right? So when you look back at your career, what does that time at London Welsh mean to you? Oh, uh, fabulous memories, you know, and, and sometimes sport is about memories, uh, memories of people, of... Uh, uh, more memories of 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 people, uh, and the, it's a corny word, camaraderie, isn't it? You know, it, it, I I think, but that's what it is. It's that warmth of feeling for each other, uh, that support and challenge for 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 each other. Um, wonderful memories, and I've already said I wouldn't swap playing now from playing when I did at London. What you can do, though, Kevin, is come back to the club. The season will start in September. Please be a guest at the club for, for us. Come to one of our pre-match lunches. Come and watch the current squad play. And it'd be great for you to keep in touch with some of our coaches. We've got you know great coaches in Kai Griffiths, Steve Shingler, Will Taylor, who are ambitious. Uh, I want you know, their ambition to be realised at London Welsh. So, um, but look, come back. Uh, and uh, that's, thank you for the invitation and I'll definitely take it up and it's been a pleasure talking to you. I hope I haven't been too boring for people to listen. <laughs> no, no way. Thank you for your time. All the best. Pleasure, Gareth. Thanks very much indeed. Good luck with everything.